former U.S. National Rugby Team captain. Team captain. Head coach and general manager. General manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jack. Joining me today is Major League Lacrosse Commissioner Alexander Sandy Brown, former CEO of One World Sports, former president of sports at Univision, long time at ESPN, NBA. Sandy, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and just a big congratulations for MLL. You guys were one of the first movers and really were able to pull off in July a bubble and have a season just a, just a massive congratulations on that. Uh, were you guys first to do that? Was that were, were you guys the first to, to move into that space that quickly? No, the NWSL was first, and we came right behind them. That's great. And everybody healthy coming out of that? Yes. I mean, we had a COVID incident during the tournament. We obviously prepared significantly for a potential event like that, but we did have one, and um, we had uh, – uh, three players test positive during the event, one of which was symptomatic. The other two were not. And everyone is doing uh, doing well and, and in good health. Yeah, that's great news. Well, congratulations. Uh, we're going to play a bit of wordplay to start. I'm just going to say a word and just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Pizza. Maria's. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Washington and Lee. Alma mater. Rugby. Major League Rugby. Great. COVID. Trying. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, the Cannons. Champion. Right on. Free Jacks. Curious. The Future. Bright. It's brilliant. Absolutely love it. Well, Sandy, you've, you've had some, some big transitions. Just a bit about your history. Do you want to just take us back a bit? You became commissioner, this what, your 18 months, 24 months as, as commissioner of MLL? Uh, two and a half. Two and a half. Two and a half years. Yeah, and, and before that, you were with One World Sports. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. And you did some time overseeing uh, sports at Univision. Correct. And ESPN, and, and you had some time in the, at the NBA. So you, you've gone through a lot of these transitions, um, especially for our, our, our up and coming leaders out there, and emerging leaders, and you know current executives. What are some of your experiences? How best to, to make those transitions? You know, there, there are some themes there probably around broadcast and, and entertainment. But how have you found making those transitions, you know, tr- particularly transitioning from a very successful career in broadcast to now running a sports entertainment league in MLL? Well, it's, it's interesting. I have had the benefit of having some really strong mentors in my career, and they have provided me with a lot of guidance, a lot of uh, incentive, a lot of motivation, um, and a lot of really good advice. I have been fortunate to be put into a number of sink or swim situations, um, even going back to when I got out of college and went to work for Donald Dell at ProServe and um, literally graduated from college on Friday. And two weeks later, they gave me a plane ticket and said, go to Europe, sell tennis. So, there's a lot of uh, been a lot of trial and error, but there are some there are certain themes that have resonated with me during my career. And um, having the ability to work for David Stern for a few years was uh, who was a great mentor of mine. Really shaped a lot of the ways that I've looked at my career, and and I think 
the um, lessons that I learned under his tutelage uh, have served me very well. And the one thing I would say is, is that to anyone who is looking to get into our business uh, and actually to any, in any business, quite frankly, is the one thing that I, that David really instilled in, in all of us who worked for him was knowledge is power. He gave us all the tools to be able to, to know more about our business than anyone else. That was, that was what he expected of us. And obviously um, if we did not, we did not follow those guidelines. Uh, <laughs> it was not a pretty situation when you had to bear that wrath. And fortunately I was, I learned my lesson through others that did, but I think knowing as much as you possibly can about your industry, about your business, um, about the various trends that are occurring will only serve you uh, in, incredibly well. And so that's, that's one of the things that I, always say to the people that work for me is that you need to be a student of the market, know more about your business than, than anyone else. We're all human. Uh, you want to give people, uh, you want to incentivize them. You want to be able to give them responsibility. I, I had, I spent um, some time working at GE when I was running CNBC and that was, a, there was a series of great lessons in terms of managing people and, uh, and how you look at a business. It, again, these, these lessons of, of, of Jack Welch, I thought were, were very instructive for me. Um, very no nonsense, but very, very clear cut. And, and I, I, I'm a big subscriber to, you know, a lot of the things, the lessons that he preached. And, and I, the other thing I would say is, is that I've been fortunate and that I've had people that I've worked for that have given me these opportunities and, and I've tried to make the most of them. And, uh, you know, I can't, tell you why Steve Bornstein hired me to ESPN and, um, you know, and gave me the ability to build a business in, a- in Asia. Um, but it was, um, you know, he did and I took full advantage of it. And I think that's, that's an important thing. Everything that you do, you should take full advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Love that. You know, so knowledge is power, uh, brilliant from David Stern and certainly a lot of, sports executives who have become very successful came out of that lineage, right, of, of David Stern and the NBA. Um, we certainly see that throughout the, the market currently. Um, Jack Welch, you know, brilliant in that part of thing. Now you're in this position where you're, you're having to manage owners. You're having to manage your internal staff to continue to build, you know, what is a two-decade-old and growing league. You have to manage the team presidents. Then you've got players, you know, that are – that are committed to the league, your media, you got your partners. How do you go about managing all that, all those different pieces? Well, that's a great question. And, and I will tell you that, yes, I've, most of my career has been spent in the television business. So I never really thought of myself as being a commissioner of anything, quite frankly. Um, and ironically, no surprise, before I took the job, I went and I saw Stern and, and um, you know, he thought I had three heads when I told him this was what was on tap. But, uh, uh, he, he um, you know, he was very quick uh, to basically say, you know, tell me that I needed to, to talk to to Bernie Mullen and Bill Sutton, Chris Granger and Scott O'Neill, all NBA alums that have, have done it in so many different respects um, and that there was something that each of them could could bring to the party for, for me. For example, ticketing. I mean, I knew nothing about ticketing, um, you know, when I took this role. And these are all things you have to learn. And I was I hired Bernie and Bill to help me with that, with all of that. Um, 
I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a change because obviously a big change of running a bunch of television networks and now you're running a different business and you're running teams. As you point out, you're running players. You've got to manage the owners and so forth. And, and I think when you have shareholders, as I have had in other, in prior roles, you have to be able to manage those shareholders. And certainly when I was at, at ESPN and CNBC, when I'm, uh, when I had multiple shareholders that I had to, to deal with, um, you learn how to manage them and you learn, you think you learn how to manage them. Um, but you, you learn to work with them. And, and it's really important that I've always looked at, uh, at my partners, my shareholders as, as any CEO would as look, looking at their board. When you rely on them for counsel and advice and, you know, certainly they're your bosses, but at the same time, you know, they have experiences that can be helpful to, to me and being able to build the business and direct the business in the right way. And, and, you know, obviously there are clear expectations that are, that are there, but, um, you know, I, I look at this very much as a partnership. Yeah. Love that. The, um, you know, you've, you've, you've come into MLL, it's been a couple ownership changes. What there's currently, what there's six teams that was there. There's an expansion ahead. You guys just were about to bring in the Connecticut team command Philly. Yeah, we have, we have six teams. We have we have two owners, two principal owners, which I'm used to operating in that kind of environment. Um, uh, certainly, when I you know through my experiences, my prior experiences, um, and those teams are in Denver, in in uh, Annapolis, in Philadelphia, in New York, in Connecticut, and in Boston. And when I walked into this job, we had. We had one owner that had six and a half of the 11 votes. Tim Davis, New Balance? Yeah. 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 The league did not have its television rights. We had a, a structure where the four founding members of the league um, uh, had a call option on 75% of our next five franchise fees. So as you can imagine, that's a very tough environment for us, for anyone to go in and try to, to get new investment. And so we had to do a lot of restructuring, um, which we did um, about 18 months ago, which basically got everybody, got the owners down to one owner, one vote. Uh, we got our media rights back and this call option on our franchise fees uh, was eradicated. So really put ourselves in a position where we had clear air. Um, at the same time, we also, as you're aware, had a uh, competing outdoor league that we had to address, and that has had its own set of dynamics that we've had to tackle. Um, you know, last year was PLL was restructuring. This year it's COVID. So I, I, mean, I think we've we've really encountered an awful lot in terms of of impediments, but I think we've come out on the other end, and I think that. You know, one of the reasons that this league has been around for 20 years is because of the fact that we're a community-based league. We we rely on our fan bases in the markets and in which we operate our teams, and we've had very supportive fan bases. And I think when you look at the macro case, which is going back to your, your one-word description when you ask me about future and when I say it's bright, I mean, I, I just think the macro case for the sport is uh, is significant, and um, and this train is not stopping. So I'm I'm very sanguine about uh, the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, you've got a, you've got a historic scholastic model that's been in place for a long, long time. You know, high school to college. That's 
not only strong, but continues to grow at additional universities. The game grows in no longer the traditional East, and you've got a lot of good athletes coming out of the West and other pockets in the North and the South. So you see a lot of participation, right? So that's is that is that a really important piece to to the future of lacrosse and MLL is participation, or is it simply that the experience of being at those games and the fan engagement and other things you guys have worked on in that regard is that just going to be so great that you don't need to have been a participant uh, to to have the great experience of lacrosse as a fan? Well, I think I think participation is important. I think it's very important uh, because you obviously have context in terms of what you're seeing on the field and, and obviously what those who play in our sport aspire to. Um, I mean, we are the pinnacle of the sport in terms of, uh, of competitive play. I would also tell you that the business of our league is no different than the business of minor league baseball or soccer or anything else. I mean, we're all about getting, you know, we rely on our fan bases, but we also have to create an environment at each of our games that, in my mind, I like to say that we all have to have a minor league baseball, that our team presidents have to have a minor league baseball mentality. Doesn't matter what so, for example, you know, what happens off the field has got to be better than what happens on the field. Really. And the fact is is that the competition for the consumer's entertainment dollar has never been higher, even in co- you know during COVID. So we have to deliver on that promise, but we have to be able to deliver something ostensibly at our games in an environment where we've got fans, there's something there for everybody. There's something there for mom. There's something there for dad. There's something there for the kids. There's something there for the family. And people enjoy being able to go to a game because they're going to see something that's absolutely fantastic on a on an athletic field. But at the same time, they have an entertainment experience that is right-sized for their wallet. And I think that's very important in this current environment. And that's something that I think is, is critical. And I think we can we can take a lot of – there are a lot of lessons to be learned that, in terms of what's been done in minor league baseball, for example. Yeah, 100% with you. And just that kind of two- to 92-year-old plan and making sure there's something for everybody at the event. And, you know, lacrosse is – you guys have a great product on the field. And certainly we feel the same about rugby. And it, it's great. But if you come and have – a fantastic experience and don't watch the rugby that's okay too uh, and i and i think we're gonna we continue to see more and more of that happening um, and we get in this debate all the time you know with my partners in terms of partnership uh, participation is important to us because that's why a lot of us got into this because we love the sport itself we love the culture of the sport we love the fast pace of it we love the physicality of it we love the camaraderie of it so on and so forth and we want to share that so participation is important on that side where we kind of come to come to blows a bit is, is is participation an important piece for us to be you know the future one of the future sports in this country and the argument on one side is yes of course you know the top four top five you know you take your, your big five you include mls in that and there's massive participation underneath and the other side of the folks are arguably well, of the ufc's of the world and wwe that you know it's not, it's not so much about participation it's purely about an entertainment product that is compelling enough to take up your time and and make you have a great experience and so that's kind of the the, the debate that we go through um and certainly lacrosse as growing participation i guess the question for you is how does that then go from there this just you know successful 20 years to um kind of being a part of that big five in the future well, I think it's also your – I think you have to look at it in terms of what your universe is. So, for example, if you look at where we are participation-wise relative to U.S. soccer, we're probably a quarter 
of what U.S. soccer is. Um, <laughs> we also, a big difference is, is that the best players in the world play in the U.S. and Canada in our sport, unlike soccer where the best players in the world do not play here. And I think that's a big advantage. You know, there we have to deal with the notion of, okay, well, it's, it's, it's somewhat like hockey in terms of your ability to be able to watch the sport on television. I, having been in the television business for most of my career, I mean, I think it's one of the most exciting things you're going to ever see uh, in sports. And I'm obviously biased, but I think the things that our guys do out on the lacrosse field are nothing short of these guys being magicians. I think you are able to see that a lot more in the in the outdoor game than you are able to see that in the indoor game. It's a different, it's a completely different game. So television plays a bigger role in being able to communicate exactly what that what transpires out on the field in terms of the the broadcast product and then what you know what product gets put out on social and so forth. And then I think there's a lot of upside in that in area, and I think it's gotten it continues to get better. And I, I think. It certainly does beg the question in this current environment with the growth and over the top as to whether or not you can really create a television-only product versus a fan-based product. And I, I just happen to believe, I mean, through time and memoriam, we've, fans have been an integral part of the athletic experience. And I think if you you hear it all the time. You're, you're hearing it from NBA players. You're hearing it from players at the U.S. Open. You're hearing from from golfers on the PGA Tour that the fans are a big part of of their performance. They're a big part of the ebb and flow of of how they perform during a, a match or a game or what have you. And I, I don't see that changing. I, I can't see that where every sport, for example, the PGA is just become a ma- becomes a made for television event. Um, I think ultimately players want fans back. That's just part of their DNA. So I think there are certain things that certain things that probably you can point towards that are that will work and they're purely made you know that are made for television. And USC has found a way to be able to do that. The uh, the PFL, the Professional Fighters League, is another one. I can't say that WWE WWE is an entertainment product for all intents and purposes, yeah. and yeah. they thrive on the, they thrive on their fans. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, look, it, all I'm saying is it begs the question. But in, in terms of execution, I think you have to have fans as part of the equation. Yeah, fans in 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 the, in the stadium, in the festival. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you look at MLS in the mid '90s and the big empty cavernous NFL stadiums versus kind of what they created, you know, post 2000 and, and building bespoke stadiums that were, that were jam packed. And we certainly see that in any sport, you know, 10,000 people in 60,000 seat stadium is, is, is not attractive on TV, right? Personal opinion, but I imagine most people would agree. The energy levels are just not the same. 10,000 people in a 10,000 seat stadium is magical. Right. And I think that's a, that's a great wheelhouse. And, experiencing those our sports live i think at a core of what we're about is 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 that festival experience right is everybody works hard during the week you come together and you're together for a bunch of hours you sing songs you know it's your your kids are there your family's having a great time you're catching up with old buddies you're meeting new people everybody's shaking hands even if you're cheering for the other team and buying each other a beer it's just a great part of our our camaraderie you layer in the globalness of it um is, is is a pretty cool 
is a pretty cool part of that. You hit on there that, that, that live events experience for you guys. What are some of the lessons to date now that since you've come in an MLL? Like what, what, what's working, what's not in terms of that live events? Let's, let's make it a, um, you mentioned minor league baseball and yeah, it's fun to watch the baseball, but as important as making the experience so great. What are some of the things and lessons that you've, that you've learned in that regard? I think one of the parallels in minor league baseball is the fact that you, I mean, in minor league baseball, you don't know what player is going to be there one week to the next. Obviously in our situation, you, well, with some exceptions, but you pretty much do. Um, and I, I just think we're all about entertainment, and I think that we're all about multiple revenue streams. I don't think our sport, candidly, has done a very good job on the entertainment side of the uh, of the house. I think traditionally our sport has basically said, "Look, we're, we're here to play, and you know, guys, people will come watch us." And it doesn't work that way. And yeah. I think I think if you go to an, an NLL game, I think one of the jo- the great things that Nick Sukavich has brought to the equation is. They do a really good job in terms of in-venue experience. Now, they're set up for that. They have venues that are multi-purpose venues, obviously, for hockey or for uh, the NBA or what have you. Ours, in our situation, we played in stadiums that uh, have been, up until last year, have been anywhere from 35,000 to 72,000. And they're not the right size stadiums for us. Our right size stadiums are probably somewhere between six and 10 or 12,000, sort of the size of a triple A park. Right. And you, and when I say that it is, it is with the notion that you want a, a stadium that is intimate from a television perspective. You want to be able to activate with the fans at the stadium. You want to be able to have the right concessions, whether it's food trucks or rosé stations or malt stations or craft beers or whatever it may be, you want to be able to have that level of flexibility. You don't necessarily get that if you're at Mile High Stadium or, you know, you're at an MLS stadium or what have you. And we're not ready for that. We're not ready for that, although meaning an MLS stadium in particular. I mean, we played a mile high as a result of our relationship with the Bowen family and we do, we'll do on July 4th, we'll put 30,000 people in there. Yeah, yeah. But really the, the, the goal here is to be in that sort of six to 10,000, 12,000. That's our sweet spot. And I think there's a lot you can do in that kind of environment. I love it. Uh, and, and, you know, you've, you've had a long career in broadcast and what, what's the future here for broadcast, right? You know, we, we see some data on cord cutting and, you know, is Fang, you know, an opportunity? What, where does this go? Like, what happens? Like, is it, is it, is it for success in a league like ours and yours? Is it going to be part of the traditional ESPNs and others of the world, or is there? Where, where does it happen? Well, I mean, I think, I, I think at this juncture, you've got over-the-top platforms that are dr- trying to drive subscribers, and all I can say is, is that I do know that our numbers this year were up multiple fold over last year on uh, our games on ESPN plus. And, um, and they're obviously looking for content to be able to try to drive subscriptions uh, for, for them. Um, but we were able to, I think a mix of having over the top and as well, having linear is a, is a good mix. And if you're in a local market, being able to have RSN coverage, so you really get multiple bites at the apple. You will obviously do what is what happens on a social basis. Um, then you know you're able to slice and dice your content, and that's a whole other 
level distribution and, and uh, impression um, generation, uh, you know, for your product. But we have, uh, we've got RSN coverage, we've got national linear coverage, and we have national over-the-top coverage. And, and I think it's when you're with an entity like the Walt Disney Company, which has been They've been a great, a great partner for us this year. There are a lot of very, a lot of facets that can help drive um, impression uh, growth, and we certainly saw that this year. And I, I dare say, when you look at the NBA, for example, and their relationship with Disney, and all the things that have come to bear as a result of that, not the least of which is their coverage on ESPN and ABC, and then them being in the bubble in Orlando. So those kinds of things, I think, are are certainly beneficial when you think about a, a distribution partner. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and you're starting to see that the Netflix of the world are, are going to be providing an opportunity to watch their content at 1.5 speed and things like that, almost like with podcasts and being able to digest in, in super speed, where I think the proposition here is this is live. You can't predict it. So you can watch it on, on, on linear. You can also watch it OTT. But as important to your earlier point is that in-stadium experience is so key to focusing and, and being a part of something that you can't, you can't speed up. You, and you can't um, – it's an experience that absolutely has to happen, um, which is so key. Do you guys have a, um, a gaming strategy? Is that part of the growth here? How does- yes, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. We are um- – and, and I will tell you that we are we are in uh, a conversation right now about that, um, and it's an important one. And I, I, I've been looking at this for about a year and a half now. And um, I mean, the truth is, that a lot of these sports books just lacrosse is not high enough on the radar screen at this point. But I think that's going to change. And I would also say that for me, it's not as much about the revenue piece of it as it is the engagement. It's just your. It's another chip in the game for a, for a fan to become involved in what you do, and you know, obviously, you know, you can do these things for you can do these things for entertainment, for fun, um, but it's another way for for the league and its teams and its players to have touch points with our fan bases in our respective markets, and also for people that are not in our local markets. Whether it may be somebody in Montana or somebody on the West Coast or what have you that does not have a team at this point, um, you know, those are good opportunities for us to be able to engage uh, new fans. And I think let me just come back to the point about the about the um, the in venue strategy. I mean, our goal is to create new fans, but also to retain existing fans. We want a reason to give our fans a reason to want to come back and to tell their friends. And when you have a, an experience that is, again, the right size experience from an economic perspective uh, with a variety of choices, um, as well as a, an exceptional athletic experience on the field, that's a good night out. And that's the kind of thing that we're, you know, that we're trying to promote. Yeah, and it's in, the, it's in that wheelhouse where you can pay a bit extra and have a pretty VIP experience. Certainly, that's an experience I've had at, at the Cannons games, and um, that you can afford to bring your whole family and buy food and have a great have a great few hours. So, I, I, I really, yeah. yeah, it's definitely in our wheelhouse there, for sure. And by the way, and and, and we're not our our view is is that we don't need people to be there for the full two hours. I'm just as happy if somebody wants to come in and 
have a couple of tacos and, 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 you know, watch a couple of quarters of the game and, uh, you know, and have a few beers or whatever it is. And I mean, that's, that's fine. And I think we're priced accordingly. We're priced to be able to make that happen. So, um, you know, we, we want to try to give people as much of a, a so-called Chinese menu as we possibly can and make it as easy for them to, uh, as possible to be able to come to a game. Completely agree. And, you know, now what's happening with potentially minor league baseball and, and hopefully, not, hopefully, you know, those 40-plus teams stay and they do some really creative things and provide great family entertainment, you know, hopefully they don't disappear. Um, but if, if that happens, there's probably going to be some opportunities there, right, for um, challenger challenger leagues to um be able to provide that opportunity i think for sure yeah I mean, exactly and i think I, I just think there's there are lessons that can be learned i mean we're all about best practices and i i can tell you that um from covid to a lot of the social justice initiatives that are taking place right now to how people entertain in their venues to how people promote uh, to what people do from uh, production value from television broadcast. These are all things that, that are things that are shareable. Um, And I, you know, I'm fortunate to have been in the industry long enough to have relationships with a lot of, you know, the other professional leagues and, and, and everyone's very happy to share what they're doing. I mean, there's no pride of authorship here. And I think that's one of the things that I think really has come out as a result of COVID, for example, um, is a lot of professional leagues got together and, and, and shared their, their protocols. And, um, and we learned a lot from that. Um, and we all realized it was a lot of trial and error, but some each league has its own different set of dynamics but you know, there's also there's something that can be learned from them all, and I think that's something that's one of the good things that's come out of all this. That's what I've been really impressed is how willing everybody's been in, in sharing, especially right now. Just okay, this worked, this didn't work. You know, calling on your staff has been fantastic, and that's happened with 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 a lot of the leagues. And just this this works, this doesn't. Here's what I do differently in the future, and that's that's really been um, fantastic. You know, so. Yeah. You know, this is your 20th season. You guys were in a bubble 10 days. What's the state of play? What happens next for MLL? From my standpoint, we are actually talking about that right now. I, we'd love to be able to pull something else off in the fall, which we're, we're trying to see if we can make that happen. Secondly, we're looking at next season. It's a bit of a moving target because one of the things we did this past, well, we, did, we started last year was eliminating the overlap with the indoor league. You know, we can all hope that things are going to come back to normal and things are going to start on time next year. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but we got to put a stake in the ground and we're doing that right now, but we're going to be planning for a regular season similar to what we've done in every other year. You know, we'll continue with the track that will start after Memorial Day um, and um, and then go into, uh, you know, probably into September um, is what we're looking at doing. And, um, you know, obviously, the, you know, trying to create as a normal situation as possible as we can. Yeah. It's going to be critical. It's really great to hear. And then, you know, there's two, you mentioned there's the, the two leagues in the summer. One's a tour-based, one's a city-based. To me, that seems like a real, real positive right now that you would have one that, you know, 
is doing one thing. It doesn't seem to be so much of a conflict and one doing another thing. And, you know, they come into town, they play in Gillette, they may create a, a, some more fans. Those fans then just go and, and, and get to be part of the cannons in their local environment. Is that what happens into the future or is there a time where that merges? Um, like, what does that look like? I, I, I don't have a crystal ball for that. I mean, what I can tell you is, is that uh, this year, I think people were, were well served in being able to get a lot of lacrosse that they missed in the spring. And I think that's a, I think that's a, that's a good thing from a business perspective that there's room for two outdoor professional leagues. Long-term. Yeah. Bifurcation of our fan bases of our sponsors uh, is not healthy. And that's just my view. Um, and I'm not, this is a view that I've been very public about, you know, look, we, we have a model that's been tried and true for 20 years and, I think it's a model that's sustainable. It's um, the other things that need to come into play in my estimation in terms of growth is, you know, being able to have the right size venues in, in the right markets with the right management teams, thinking along the lines of, of creating an entertainment product that, um, you know, really creates sustainability for this league. Yeah. And that's, that to me, that, that's really I feel very strongly about that. I think those are those are table stakes. You know, we don't have our guys full time, and they play a game or two a week. And you know, as you know, in our the situation this year, they played uh, between five and seven games uh, or six, I should say, and they were able to do that. And I and I that was a very difficult task in a very difficult weather environment, but they got it done. Yeah, it's really so, I'm, I'm I'm as I said, I'm. I think if you look at the fan experience and whether you go to watch, you go to Twickenham, you go to AT&T in Dallas, you go to Eden Gardens in Bombay, um, you go to the MCG in, in Melbourne, uh, you go to the U.S. Open Tennis or, the, the, or Wimbledon, Every, they all have their different um, idiosyncrasies, shall we say. But there's always there's something about them that keeps that people keep coming back and that allows people to keep coming back and and I would say that those entertainment experiences continue to get better and better uh, each and every year. Absolutely, but does that they have to? Yeah, absolutely. But does does that create a situation where we're seeing in other industries where you know it's kind of just the top group because of their leverage capacity and their purchasing power makes a product that is so fantastic that it removes the opportunity for others. And I think you addressed this earlier. Well, there's an economics to that. There's an economics to participation. Uh, and, um, and that really changes the, the differential, I think. But to your, to your earlier point about expansion, it kind of begets the question, as you guys have now solidified kind of your structure, you've got the six teams. Is it now, are you guys starting to look for expansion into other geographies and, and, and looking to grow uh, the business in that regard? Yeah, we're always looking for that. That's something that's um, very top of mind, and um, uh, we're we you know we I mean ideally I'd like to be in a twelve to sixteen be a twelve to sixteen team league. I think the participation is directly linked to the interest in a lot of these DMAs. Whether it's you know obviously we saw a lot of interest down in Dallas, Minneapolis, uh, the Bay Area, Portland so forth and so on. We actually do well in the deep South. So, you know, Charlotte has always been good for us. Um, Columbus, 
these are all markets that have demonstrated they've got a strong youth component, but it's finding the right size stadium to accommodate what we need to be able to do and have the right ownership in each one of those markets that is willing to put in the elbow grease to, to make it a success. And I can tell you that the one franchise here in, in our league that's done a great job of that are the Boston Cannons. They have, they have adopted that smaller environment and uh, have a great management team and have executed on the entertainment needs of, of the fan base. And they've done a really good job of getting people to the games. And, you know, lo and behold, they're our champion this year. So, um, you know, yeah, they've been really helpful to us. And that, that move to Quincy, that's a nice, that's a nice setup. And they've been great, yeah. which is, which is a big hat to that. Yeah, for us, we're at 13 teams now. You know, we're North America. We have the one team in Toronto. A lot of interest from other DMAs, and that, that's kind of like the, the supply demand you can control. You know, there's probably 40 somewhat cities that could have a team. It's just where's the best place to put it. Um, right. You know, the future is, is, a, is a big debate that we have. And certainly we've seen, like, lacrosse in the NLL, the, the franchise fees seem to have um, skyrocketed over the last few years, like a lot of other sports entertainment properties. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out in the next in the next couple of years. I think it's going to be very rapid fire questions for you. Um, these are kind of fun uh, for the most part. So, is there a player in the MLL who could take on a grizzly uh, by himself? <laughs> yeah, all of them could. Oh, that's awesome! Love that. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's great. And are, is there a favorite book you're reading nowadays? Like anything that you that you'd recommend to our listeners? Um, the one book which I just finished reading, which I think is a great book, is I was a history major at Washington and Lee, is The American Story, which um, David Rubenstein is the one who compiled it. But it's uh, I, I'm I think it's one of the best books I've read in a long time. I mean, I, I couldn't put it down. It's just you know, you got the great historians in this in the world talking about different things that have happened and the lessons learned and so forth. And it really, I think it's a really an exceptional book so that, that was one that i wrote that's great and anything uh, any series or movies that you've liked lately i watched it I actually saw something on prime video which i thought was pretty good which is called the night manager which i like uh, you know i lived in asia uh for 15 years so i like a lot of these british dramas yeah. so i um i like watching a lot of that mr bean is always the one that i um but uh but yeah, that was uh, that was a that was a pretty good one. So you'd like rugby culture? That's great. No, I have to look at. I'll yeah, look at. Well, I'm not a big fan of it. I mean, we used to carry when I was at ESPN. We you know we carried the World Cup and yeah, um, and um, you know I've been to a number of matches and you know it's a great it's just it's a tremendous sport. We you know we carried um, uh, what did we carry the Super Twelves? Yeah. Um, uh, at one point. Um, yeah, uh, we carried the NRL, um, and um, you know, famous grouse always came in, and they were a uh, a big sponsor of all of our all of our rugby. I used yeah. to, I used to have a lot of the guys at the ad agencies, um, or you know, a lot of the expats in, in Singapore would ask me to carry more rugby. I said, "Well, I'm more than happy to do it, but you know, we need to get some of these guys at the ad agencies to step up and." say they're going to support it besides famous growls. Yeah. So. But I know that's all changed a lot. Yeah, so it's, it's changed massively. I mean, you can think about it. It's a sport that only went professional in 95, right? It forever prides yeah. itself on 
kind of the Corinthian ideals of amateurism. So it's 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 had its um, lessons over the last twenty plus years with Rugby World Cup. I mean, it's second, third largest sporting event in the world, and it continues yeah. to grow. It's just it's just getting through the kind of club versus country, and there's just a lot of assets out there. And what should people be putting their money into, and what shouldn't they? And that's where we're in probably a really good position because we're North America, we're rugby. We can connect with the global markets. We have a burgeoning fan base here from people who have been exposed, whether it was in college, whether it was overseas, whether it was through work, whether their kids are playing. And that's a, that's, that's a really cool piece of it. So with that, this is a question I ask everybody kind of to end things. If you were running the Free Jacks today, what would you be focusing on? I mean, I, I can't tell you that I know an awful lot about, um, you know, the issues that the, you know, the team has. But, I mean, I, I would really be thinking about fan experience because that's – you know, I think rugby in particular, um, I mean, if you think of the, the Hong Kong Sevens, which is really, to me, one of the great um, sporting events that I've ever attended, it's just, uh, it is, there's a lot of, um, a lot of minor league baseball in that, but in a much bigger way, yeah. um, the fan experience. And I think it's just, it's a lot of fun. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah. So, so, Sandy, I played, um, in the, I played in the Hong Kong Sevens six times, coached in it three times. Yeah, so it's, uh, I, 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 it's very much the type of festival. You know, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. You know the environment. It's it's, it's brilliant. It's unlike when the South China Morning Post on the front page. You may remember this guy, the Pie Man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who was a trader in the city and gets and they show him getting off a, a BA or a cat, actually it was a Cathay. It was a Cathay flight. They show him getting off of the plane. That's the front page photograph. Uh, and the, the SBMP that tells you, you know, that's all you need to know. Exactly. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. And so we'll get you to free Jacks game uh, this, you know, hopefully this spring, but um, certainly, Good. certainly soon enough. And you know, our our experiences are very much that very similar costumes. You know, enjoying the game, but enjoying each other as well. So yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. I'm really glad that you've had that experience. Sandy, it's been great to uh, catch up, and I look forward to uh, continuing the dialogue into the future. Thank you, Sandy. Be well.